Hello and welcome to the Fit to Transform podcast, where you learn how to train and diet effectively and, most importantly, how to maintain those results for life, once and for all. I'm Nikias Tomasiello, a transgender training and nutrition coach working online with anyone who's ready for a true lifestyle transformation anywhere they may be in the world. As a friendly reminder, any and all information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult with your doctor before implementing any changes to your diet and exercise program. With that disclaimer out of the way, thank you for being here. Now grab yourself a cup of tea or pre-workouts and enjoy. Dear listeners, thank you for tuning in to this conversation with George Mycock about muscle dysmorphia, exercise addiction, and disordered eating. George and I are both very passionate about these topics, so my originally planned for hour-long podcast turned into a two-hour conversation. Therefore, this week I'm starting with part one, and next week you're going to get part two. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Yo, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting with George Mycock to talk about muscle dysmorphia, disordered eating, and exercise addiction. George, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's nice to be here. So what I always open the podcast with is a question on who you are, what you do, and why you're so awesome at it, so that everyone can get to know you. <laughs> I was. Uh practicing my version of this before we came on i listened to your podcast with uh shannon beer and uh i was like oh i need to i need to come up with a cool way of responding to this uh yes yeah, so, <laughs> so my name is my name is george michael i didn't come up with a cool way just uh, <laughs> at a time i tried but here we go my name is george michael uh unfortunately enough with that last name it's a terrible one um but here we are um <laughs> i am a phd candidate so i study uh, muscularity oriented issues in men so by that I mean things like muscle dysmorphia and um, disordered eating around muscularity and and all that all that jazz uh, I also am the founder of a mental health organization called Myominds, which works uh, similarly in in research uh, the, ma- the main kind of mission for Myominds is about trying to improve knowledge and disseminate it to other people so other people know about the um, issues that people who exercise can can um, struggle with so things like exercise addiction disordered eating body image concerns etc um the reason why i'm so awesome at it <laughs> I, I i as most people i uh, go through imposter syndrome and some of the, especially some of the stuff i get to do with my own minds i um sometimes i'm like i have no idea how i've got in this position um but here i am i i think the reason i'm good at it is because i'm very one, I'm very passionate about it, and I think hopefully that shows when people ask me questions. I tend to, my, and a, I guess a pre-warning in advance for you, Nikias, is I think every podcast I've ever been on, I hold the record for the longest podcast they've done or close to. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll try. I've been working on it, so hopefully it won't be too bad today. Um, but I, yeah, I tend to get really excited and I want to talk about it a lot, and also. Uh, probably talk about it today my I have my own lived experience with the stuff that I research which um, you have to be careful with with research because I have to make sure that I'm not just putting my experience onto the data that I'm collecting and the way I analyze things but in the same way it means I have a nuanced perspective that other researchers might not be able to 
to see or or kind of think of because I can be like oh well when I felt that it wasn't what you guys are saying it was actually this and then we can look into that and maybe that's right or maybe it's wrong and, and we don't know so yeah that's my long-winded answer yeah don't worry at all take all of the time that you want to talk because I've done all the work I need to do earlier this morning I have I don't have a client for at least a couple hours we're all good <laughs> <laughs> but aside from that, thank you for the excellent introduction. It was definitely cool, at least in my view. And I'm the host, so my opinion is the only one that matters, really. <laughs> and um, the first question I wanted to ask is, well, first off, as I told you off air and for the listeners, I do want to delve into your lived experience. So my first question about uh, for the p- podcast today would be about muscle dysmorphia. So first off, can you define what muscle dysmorphia is and then talk to us a little bit about how you personally experienced it if you did? Yeah, absolutely. So um, just to caveat before I start, I said to you off there, I'm, I'm not feeling very well today. So if I'm not as coherent as I would previously be, I'm, I apologize up front to your listeners. Uh, so muscle dysmorphia is uh, a it's classed as a specifier or a variant of body dysmorphic disorder in the diagnostic statistical manual which for people who don't know is basically a big book of mental health diagnostic stuff that people that psychiatrists psychologists etc use to diagnose people with things um and within that book there's body dysmorphic disorder which has a list of components that tend to be around someone having overall having some kind of preoccupation and a feeling of certainty that there is some kind of flaw with their body whatever that might be it doesn't have to be um, muscle or body fat or that kind of thing it can be skin it can be nose it can be like all sorts of they can be anything like on with on your body um and if someone is diagnosed with that then someone can the doctor can specify what like further and one of the specifications is muscle dysmorphia so if they have these symptoms of body dysmorphic disorder and also it's around a perceived flaw in their level of muscle and that is both size and or leanness so it doesn't have to just be these people who are trying to get as massive as possible it can be people focused on becoming super lean and super shredded um then then it leads to muscle dysmorphia and, and muscle dysmorphia maybe we can talk about as we go on but it's linked to numerous kind of physical and mental health symptoms and consequences that can be really dangerous and for me was really dangerous uh, I, I was never diagnosed with muscle dysmorphia I'll, I'll say up front and um I don't think that's because I th- um, I'll rephrase my answer I think that's because of issues with the criteria and the way that we understand muscle dysmorphia in a clinical sense because I research muscle dysmorphia I have this company where I talk about muscle dysmorphia. I was, I've been in several documentaries and and TV shows and all sorts about muscle dysmorphia. I think I've met one person so far who has been diagnosed with it. So I am, I am in the, I am, I'm as deep in the trenches as you can be, and I've met one person. So, and but but we know that the symptoms are a lot higher than than one person in in the prevalent studies that we do have. It seems to be a lot more common when when we go out there and kind of not force people, but we ask people to do these surveys. A lot of people show the symptoms, but nobody's getting diagnosed. And um, so mm. it's not just a me thing. But yeah. So um, I guess yeah. For for me, muscle dysmorphia revolved around my feeling that I both wasn't big enough and wasn't lean enough. And those aspects of the way that I viewed my body as being insufficient 
were almost synonymous or at least very deeply entrenched in my own identity um, and and something I, I look into in my research and, and for me it was specifically my identity as uh, self-identifying as a man who wants to be masculine masculinity was such a key part for me in that I wanted to for me anyway it was my dad my dad was um, very hard working um very kind of endured a lot of pain he used to play rugby he was quite a big big guy so all these stereotypical masculine traits that you that people you know get pushed onto them i i felt like i needed to be them and for whatever reason i felt like i wasn't them and muscle building generating that body generating that look and making people think that i was those things was what i was obsessed with and so when i couldn't stick to my exercise when i couldn't stick to my diet it wasn't just that, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a dick for not sticking to that. It was, I'm, um, I'm useless now. I'm not what I'm supposed to be, and and that kind of led to these spirals of my mental health over and over again. How old were you when you developed these uh, symptoms of muscle dysmorphia? Yeah, so uh, I, I think I, I started to, so muscle dysmorphia. I think I, I started probably around 18 ish. Mm. But I, I started with kind of the disordered eating and the body image concerns when I was around 14, 15. I broke my spine when I was 13 and I gained a lot of weight from from the injury. And I was and I again felt like I had lost a lot of this respect and, and felt like people were treating me differently because I'd gained so much weight. And I, I found that as I lost weight, people were, you know, if you're in a, um, I think I was technically obese according to BMI, but BMI is bullshit, um, uh, in my opinion anyway. Um, but I was technically obese according to BMI and, you know, so, and I wasn't before and people, you know, anyone who's lived in an obese body knows that if you lose weight, no one gives a shit how you're losing it. Or, you know, I was pretty much at one point starving myself and exercising multiple times a day, um, you know, uh doing kind of purging tactic with exercise self-induced vomiting and that kind of stuff and um, but people just saw me losing weight so people were like whatever you're doing just keep doing it and um so i originally was very much thinness oriented and then as i would kind of got into nutrition and got into exercise uh, i started to look at different media sources social media magazines internet etc and all the all the men in that media that i was looking up to all had big shoulders big arms veins six pack etc so i kind of thought oh i need to be that and again as well the those bodies were not just bodies they were tied to like masculinity it was are you man mm -hmm. enough to do this workout like i look at these like big guns and these like you know like it's all very tied into uh, if you want to be masculine you have to look this way um yeah and and that's what i thought i i needed to be so yeah oh that makes sense so it sounds like between 13 and 18 that's when you were leanness oriented and you developed disordered eating and then from 18 onwards that's when you also became um obsessed if i can use that word with the idea of being also as muscular and as lean as possible to embody these masculinity ideals that you thought you needed to embody mm, yeah perfect and i think obsessed is a um 
very kind of precise word that you should use because a body dysmorphic disorder is very closely linked to OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, because it is a there's an obsession and there's compulsions that are tied into it. So, yeah, I think obsession is the exact word <laughs> I would use. So in that case, you touched upon um, symptoms of muscle dysmorphia and uh, symptoms that you ask people or force people, whichever which choice. <laughs> oh, no, definitely not force. Force is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you ask your participants to fill out these surveys, what are the symptoms that would classify somebody as having muscle dysmorphia? Yeah. So again, when I... I mentioned before that the clinical symptoms are aren't necessarily accurate in my opinion and mm. there's a lot of researchers who kind of argue that that needs to be it's, it's currently very narrow um, yes. and, it, and it's, it's specifically around um the overwhelming preoccupation with not being muscular enough um and um, often l compulsive levels of exercise so there isn't an, a specific number on the amount of exercise that someone should be doing because you know professional athletes you know fitness influencers and those kind of things they have to do a lot of exercise it's their job you mm -hmm. know and um, so we can't put a number on it um but it's that um compulsion around it feeling like you need to do it which maybe i can talk a bit more about yes um and then that's that yeah that um, overwhelming sense that you don't look the way you're supposed to um, and also uh, quite often that um, other people don't see that that issue that you're so obsessed that you have you know you think mm -hmm. you're really small but other people don't see that mm -hmm. um, so those are the, the main ones but also one of the reasons why we think that the clinical symptoms might not be as accurate as they could be is because when we do interviews with people who have been diagnosed with muscle dysmorphia or when um, researchers you know find people who have very high symptoms of muscle dysmorphia they also tend to have the disordered eating aspects and these, yes. these um, types of eating behaviors that um, can cause significant negative distress as well and, and cause these kind of significant problems for them and um, but according to the current kind of clinical guidelines it shouldn't some of muscle dysmorphia shouldn't technically have that um but it, yeah so it becomes very confusing and <laughs> kind of all over the place but yeah it, it's mostly a, a, around that um being convinced that you're not muscular enough leanness and size when other people don't mm -hmm. see it and those obsessive exercise behaviors that makes sense. In fact, I said yes just now uh, because it surprised me when you listed these symptoms that there's nothing related to nutrition. Mm. Yeah, and it, it is it is surprising, and um, it's something there was. There's a researcher called Stuart Murray um, mm -hmm. over in America who, back in 2010, when before muscle dysmorphia had been um, kind of cemented as a clinical disorder in 2013, um, he basically argued that it would be better um, or more prudent to put muscle dysmorphia as a form of eating disorder. Um, partially because of the symptoms that we see and you know you're in the fitness industry uh, we all talk about how nutrition's 90 percent of the game you know like you you know you're, the first thing you saw out is your nutrition and then and then you can think about oh you know, normally it's like sleep then nutrition then exercise that kind of stuff you know mm -hmm. um so it'd be it would be odd if someone was this obsessed with muscle and didn't engage in some kind of extreme level of diet like that would be mm -hmm. a, it would that's quite rare um and and uh, yeah and but uh, still and, and understandably so there's there's a lot of evidence linking it to body dysmorphic disorder um 
but there's actually more evidence now people suggesting that maybe it's a completely separate disorder like it's not an eating disorder or a body dysmorphic disorder it's just like a separate entity altogether um, mm-hmm. but yeah it's 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 very common that people who have muscle dysmorphia struggle with dieting um, because so much of what we um talk about and and so much that's important for trying to build muscle is your nutrition like you know you need yeah. a certain amount of protein you need a certain amount of calories you need these things in place in order to build muscle so it makes sense that you know if you have such a disordered relationship with wanting to be muscular that you might then generate a disordered relationship with food as well so even though that even that's not technically part of the symptoms it is something to look out for i suppose yeah agreed so with that i want to talk about both um exercise addiction and disordered eating but given that Technically speaking, exercise addiction is a symptom and uh, disordered eating apparently is not at the moment. Let's start with exercise addiction, which is also the first thing you mentioned being uh, your experience. How how do you define, you said earlier, we can't really put a number on the number of sessions you do or the workload that you undergo and call it, ah, you do this much and that's exercise addiction. Because as you say, some athletes do a a lot of uh, workload in terms of training that a non-athlete wouldn't um, wouldn't undergo. And yet they're not necessarily, they don't have an addiction. So how do you define exercise addiction and what did that look like for you? Yeah, so the definition is is difficult and researchers argue about it a lot. And in fact, even the the terminology exercise addiction is um, it's the one that I use, uh, mm-hmm. but it's a bit controversial for some researchers. Some people prefer compulsive exercise or exercise dependency. There's so the the real answer is as research perspective, we don't really know. Um, and I don't think anyone has can fully like define it yet. I think it's one of the things we're still trying to figure out. I think what what we're hinting at and um, the definition of exercise addiction is combining both compulsion and dependency. Mm-hmm. So I'll go kind of through both of them. Dependency is kind of what it sounds like. I think it's the easiest one to understand when you depend on it for some reason. So, you know, I uh, there's kind of the classic um positive feedback loop and a negative feedback loop which is so the positive one which is a a kind of a a better um one to be in is when I do more exercise my body changes and I like the way that is or I make more friends or I feel better you know the endorphins that kind of stuff so I want that to keep going so I want to do more exercise so you keep going around there I want to do more I want to do more I want to do more I want to keep doing it the problem is that that can quite subtly change to when I do exercise, my body changes, I make friends. If I stop doing it, will my will that will that no longer be the case? Will I lose my friends? Will I lose the way I feel? Will my anxiety come back? Will mm-hmm. I be a loser? Will everyone hate me? All this kind of stuff. Now I need to do it, otherwise something terrible is going to happen to me. Um, and you know that that can become a really entrenched thing and something that I really struggled with and and it's kind of the the essence of dependency in a sense it's based in fear and based in guilt of holy sorry I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast yeah go ahead yeah yeah it's like holy shit if I stop doing exercise I'm gonna like something really bad's gonna happen and then compulsion which kind of goes hand in hand hence why it's kind of teamed up with 
exit addiction. Um, the way that I've been explaining it recently, it's it's that it is that essence of needing to do something and um, feeling an overwhelming urge to do something. And yeah, the way that I explain it is because I think people often, when they hear that, if they haven't experienced it themselves, they think of it as a kind of cognitive thing where I think through it and I go, oh, I should probably do exercise. Um, I'm going to have to do it soon, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of I, I get in my own head about it. Often it wasn't that. It was it's it's more guttural than that is the way I can explain it. Um, a good metaphor is it if 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 I ask you to hold your breath and ask your listeners to hold your breath for as long as you possibly can, at some point you're gonna feel you don't think it through, you don't talk to yourself about it. You're just gonna feel like I need to take a breath right now, otherwise, I, like I can't hold it any longer. And you will. And whereas in actual fact, you probably could have gone a few more seconds. You know, people often train themselves to get past that panic stage and realize they can hold their breath for way longer than than they realize. But you still sense that sense that overwhelming fear of I need to take this breath. Mm -hmm. That's the closest feeling I can think of to how I felt about exercise. It was I for something happened in my day. I felt a certain way for whatever reason. And suddenly I need to do exercise right now to get rid of this feeling to do it just it was just a, a guttural sense of this needs to happen. Um, and I suppose I've already spoken about my experience there to some degree, but I, I very much dependent on exercise to, as I mentioned, to to work on my identity um, and that tied into masculinity to some degree, um, but also to feel like I could be loved. I, I, I very much um, equated the that kind of respect I felt I got from the way that I trained and and it wasn't just the way my body looked either it was also the fact that I was like stronger and I was pushing myself really hard and you know I was I was that guy like screaming in the corner you know and and which is is fine people do that but you know I was a big like screamer and like ah I'm gonna do this and you know slapping each other with my friends and all that kind of stuff um, and that display was was something I depended on. Um, and and the yeah, and the compulsion was there because I was so terrified that if I stopped, um, that something bad would happen. And also because it was the only coping mechanism I had for any negative feelings I felt. I think I didn't have another way to um, kind of uh, help with my with my how my mental health was and how I felt about myself other than doing exercise and sticking to my diet so it yeah it became this I need to do it otherwise something yeah I'm going to lose everything thank you for sharing that so did was there ever a week or a few days when you wanted to exercise but you had to uh, skip it for whatever reason and if you ever missed a workout during that period of time what happened to you how did you feel yeah, so um, there, there was multiple times where I couldn't, not even just because something got in the way, but because the standard of what I classed as a, a kind of worthy exercise session grew constantly because mm -hmm. I think every time I successfully completed one of my workouts, whether it be a certain rep range or with a certain weight or whatever it was, I, that kind of confirmed to myself that it wasn't quite hard enough. I needed to do a bit more. Mm -hmm. It even got to the point where um, I, I'm kind of tussling whether I want to say this, but I, I guess it, it's good to be honest in this. And I don't think I'm necessarily um, encouraging people to because it was a terrible idea. But it even got to the point where um, 
if I didn't throw up from how like hard I worked or um, even sometimes like I'd, I'd fainted a couple times mm-hmm. from trying to do stuff that then it was a failure of a workout it got to that point where if I don't if I'm not sick from how much I'm doing then then it, I didn't do it well enough and so even if it, it got to the point where even doing the exercise wasn't enough if it wasn't to such an extreme level mm-hmm. um and that yeah led uh, yeah and the and the, the issue was so every time that happened I felt this sense of kind of shame and um yeah loss of identity and kind of uh, like grief for losing that version of myself that I felt like I was for a bit you know finally doing the exercise finally sticking to the diet finally my body's looking somewhere near where I want it to be um and and I just felt so overwhelmed and this kind of cycle happened for a while where I'd feel a bit better and then I'd have to stop and feel a bit better and then I'd stop and um I used to lock myself away because I was so ashamed of people seeing me I was so certain that people would just see it on my face that, that I that that workout wasn't good enough and that you know and they just instantly think I was a piece of shit and just hate me and just you know it was just I can't it, it, I can't explain it in any rational way because it was irrational um it just it was I was so certain that people would know and people would hate me for it and it just it got to the point where um you know I had tried enough times and in my eyes failed enough times that I just didn't think I should be here anymore and that's when I started to really struggle with suicidality and um you know I'd been I'd thought about it for a long time and um, got to the point where I planned it and decided a day and and everything and yeah and it got to that day and um, I'm very lucky that one of my friends uh, from university uh, came to visit me at my house she hadn't seen me for a few weeks because I'd been hiding away um and yeah she she I think she texted me at first I didn't respond so she just turned up at my door (laughs) um and just kind of knocked on and yeah I think saved me because then I kind of just yeah cried in front of her and told her how how horrible I was feeling and then she convinced me to um speak to my parents who then helped me find a counsellor and kind of yeah my recovery journey started from there really That was really fortunate. And thank you so much for being so honest about this. The reason why I asked is that I was wondering if you've seen it in research or you've experienced it yourself, whether when you can't follow through with these behaviors that you're addicted to, um, people have compensatory mechanisms like similar to whereby similar to the uh, binging and purging cycle in binge eating disorder where uh, the person has an uncontrolled binge and then afterwards purges those calories by overdoing it with exercise and I was wondering if maybe there's a similar uh, mechanism with um, uh, exercise addiction as well maybe food related where some people might find that they restrict their intake as a result of not exercising as they plan to uh, there's definitely um they call it debting behavior in in like in the, the eating disorder research where you kind of view exercise and food as like kind of monetary value so mm-hmm. if i don't exercise as much i have to eat less as well to kind of make up for it mm-hmm. and there would definitely was that sense with it with, with me um but also in regards to the the kind of exercise addiction it was it was very closely linked again to this identity that i had this version this mm-hmm. kind of good version of myself that i wanted to show to the world and 
there was when I couldn't stick to my exercise, there was kind of a, you know, like I feel like in, in fit in the fitness world, they call it kind of, I, I can't think of the name they call it, but at least me and my friends used to call it kind of like the fuck it moment where yeah. you would like, you know, you'd have like a donut and you'd be like, Oh, fuck it. I might as well just like have 10 donuts now and like, you know, take the whole week off and just do whatever I want. Um, and that those those it kind of I kind of got into that that mindset often where my exercise workout wouldn't be right or I, I didn't go for whatever reason I'd feel so ashamed of myself and so weak and useless and pointless that I'd just be like you know what I don't care I'm just gonna like order loads of food and binge eat basically and mm-hmm. um, not go to the gym and just hide away and just spiral um and I think that was part of the reason why it was, they call it catastrophizing, I think, in like um, rational motive behavioral therapy. Um, mm. Where, yeah, it just, it became, it, it was one bad workout, but it became everything and just became this horrible moment for me. So my, my, I guess, yeah, my way of coping with it in some, to some degree was to just let go of everything. Um, but yeah, in, in the same vein, there was a, a level of, that kind of debting behavior as well quite often where yeah if, if i if if i didn't quite catastrophize if it wasn't bad enough for that to happen there was definitely those moments where i would then manipulate my diet as well um but again again that's you know i, I could talk about this forever because it, it's also there's a there was a part of it that was health related and you know wanting to i, I know on shannon beer's um the podcast that you did with shannon beer you were talking about um that you know striving for to to kind of work on your body isn't necessarily a bad thing and even I still go to the gym now and I still like kind of try and eat quote unquote healthily now um and that I don't don't class that as disordered but there was a yeah there was there was something there that that made it made it bad yeah it's interesting isn't it uh I think with muscle dysmorphia for one, it's, I think it's less well-known than uh, eating disorders, uh, like, for example, anorexia. Um, so people wouldn't necessarily know that it's even an, it can be an issue. Mm. Uh, but also a lot, well, all of the behaviors involved with muscle dysmorphia are in some way exalted as the way to achieve physique-related goals mm. um, because you are eating a certain way eating a lot of protein sometimes a lot of calories if you're if your aim is to gain muscle sometimes a lot less calories if your aim is to lose body fat um you're training often so obviously that's a massive component of building more muscle and that's essentially what the fitness community recommends not because it's trying to give people muscle dysmorphia but because it is how you achieve these goals the difference lies in the fact that, well, speaking from a personal experience, I had an eating disorder, a restrictive eating disorder for seven years. And then I had disordered eating for a few years after that. So all in all, it was a good decade. And the way that manifested for me was in part exercise addiction. Like you, the bar kept moving higher and higher because I was completely weight loss oriented. I was overweight. 
I lost all of that weight. And I truly believed that if I didn't do as much exercise as I was doing, and I didn't eat as little as I was eating and the specific foods that I was eating, so there was an orthorexic component to it, Mm. then I would regain all of the weight and I wouldn't be able to maintain the results that I had achieved. So for me, it wasn't necessarily a case of making the exercise intense, because for me, it was I purely focused on cardio. Um, so it was all about the time for me. If I didn't do it for X amount of time, then my results would uh, would fall apart. And the reason why I bring my experience up is that I thought about it and I've read some research on it as well, obviously not to your level. And my understanding is that the difference between the two behaviors is how they, between the two frames of mind, is lies in how it affects your life if you're if you're if these behaviors dictate your life then that's when you have some sort of issue around it that is that could be clinically diagnosed like for me there was a time when if i didn't do my however many workouts i intended on doing if i had even if i had to move them by one day that would be a mental breakdown it would mean that on the day that I was going to exercise and I couldn't, I probably wouldn't eat. Or I never actually went a full day without eating at all. But if I had planned a couple of meals, call, let's call them that, but they were really low in calories, so they were they were not really meals. But let's say that I had planned certain food to eat, I would eat at least a little less than that because in my head I was making sure to make up for the, the the calories that I wasn't burning on that day because I wasn't exercising whereas now I I honestly if you looked at the way I eat and if I if you looked at the way I train you would think that the behaviors haven't really changed except now I eat enough um but if I have to move a workout I move it mm. uh, if I don't want to work out I don't work out and if I want to eat differently, I eat differently and I don't make a big deal of it. So those behaviors no longer dictate the way that I live my life. Mm, yeah, and uh, yeah, you've really hit the nail on the head there. It's the, I, I mentioned before, the significant negative distress. That's a, a big part of any, I think almost any mental health disorder diagnosis is that it has that significant negative effect on your life um and yeah it's a a very very important aspect because it it, controlling your life doesn't necessarily mean it's bad because my immediate thought was bodybuilders like they do have it does control their life to some degree Mm -hmm. um but it's it's a really it's a really difficult one to find with bodybuilding because you know if you're if you're in season and you're going to compete then it controls your life everything goes around it but in Mm -hmm. the same way that you're everyone's normal like other job it does you know you have to work yeah. around your your work and um, so that's normal um but i think it comes down to as i think you're you're suggesting there that during those off season moments they can then be more relaxed and they can then feel a bit better about the fact that they you know they can skip a workout or they can just move a workout or those kind of things um but yeah, thank thank you for sharing your experience. And yeah, I I I don't know if I uh, if you want me to ask you questions back, but I do have a question. And yeah, go um, ahead. I what do you think changed for you um, from where? Like, wh- what is it that changed that allows you now to um, like move workouts and it not it not affect you as much as it as it did before? 
Oh, that's a really good question. Let me um, take a moment to think about it. Mm. I think the main reason uh, may be that I can now recognize that what I believed isn't true. At the time, I, I truly believed that if uh, I missed that workout or if I ate the extra half apple, and I, I, I use that as a very specific example because at some point eating half an apple was what I was, what I was eating, and if I had more than that, I would have, it wouldn't have happened, basically. I, I literally cut the, the apple in half. I weighed the half that I intended on eating. I made sure it was exactly the weight it needed to be. And then I ate it. That's how long it took me to eat an apple. Not a whole apple, just half an apple. Anyway, moving on. At the time, I truly believe that if I didn't stick to these rules that I had created for myself, I would lose what I'd been able to achieve because adhering to those rules had enabled me to lose a lot of weight. And as you said, people complimented me um, left and right about how, how I'd managed to be so disciplined, how I changed my physique uh, in such a notable way. And that only reinforced the idea that those behaviors were right. I saw the results I wanted. Clearly, other people saw them too. So that was the way that I could achieve those results. I had, you know, I was 15, between 14 and 15 when I started. I was 16 when I realized that that was a problem. Um, it was, And it wasn't just me trying to lose a little bit of weight. Now it was me having an eating disorder. So I had a very black or white mindset. And I couldn't see past. I also, personality-wise, I am very... Um, efficiency oriented so for me the most efficient path to the goal is the best path but at the time being so young and immature it wasn't just the best path it was the only path so I didn't want to take any other alternative I couldn't see any alternative but had I seen one I probably wouldn't have wanted it because it would have felt less than whereas what I can see now is that for one that is not the best way to the goals that I have now. Uh, it is not the only way. And also, I think what I was reflecting about as you were talking is how interesting it is It is that when you deal with these issues, one component of your mentality is the short-term view. Like, it seems like neither of us could see the long-term outcome of our behaviors. Whereas if I think about it now, what would happen if I skipped a workout? Well, I aim to be immortal, so probably nothing, because it's a drop in the ocean relative to the amount of inf infinite years that I'm going to be on this earth. Whereas at the time, if I missed a workout, there, it was like I, I was convinced that the next day I would wake up and look exactly like I did when I was overweight. Mm. I wouldn't that that kind of feels almost just inherently human in a sense that you know we were at least maybe speaking for myself but um I was so scared mm -hmm. that I wasn't enough and I was so terrified that I needed constant proof that I was and you know as human beings we live in the moment we can you know as much as we as much as we have anxiety about the future and we think about things we do experience the moment and that's all we ever do um, and in that sense, maybe that's where that that fear and 
especially well, that's where that fear manifests because it thrives in that moment you know where, where we can't have the the I suppose, logical brain that says well actually if I miss this workout I'm just going to do it tomorrow or you know whenever whenever I'm just going to continue doing them afterwards and it'll be fine um you know but it's, it's interesting that yeah so it sounds like almost education was was the turning point for you when you you learned about nutrition and learned about exercise and it's interesting because the reason I I say that to some degree is because I'm doing a um systematic review at the moment on um help seeking behavior for appearance concerns in men Mm-hmm. so like body image disordered eating that kind of thing and, and people ha- seeking help for it and one of the big barriers that that i've found that seems to be reported across research is that the men tend to say that they didn't they didn't know enough about what a healthy version of exercise and a healthy version of eating was so they just assumed what they were doing was fine um, and then and then when they l- realized oh like this is actually unhealthy then they were more likely to be like oh shit this is a problem and i need to i need to now seek help so it sounds like your story was kind of similar to that in a in a, in a at least maybe in, in a little bit of an aspect anyway i think it is partly down to education as you say uh, i wouldn't say i th- i didn't realize that it was unhealthy because at some point it was very clear to me and all involved that it was unhealthy like even i when i was uh, more rational about it could say um I, I i don't weigh enough like this is not this is not how much i should weigh because i'm not healthy in at this body weight um and however i don't i wouldn't say i didn't realize that it was unhealthy but more so i thought well if i do anything else it's not going to work the same way and i won't i don't want to lose what i've achieved so the education helped me in that it showed me actually you're going to get better results because you can be at a healthy uh, body composition and you can also not have all of these behaviors that are now uh, dictating how you feel and dictating what you do every hour of the day and your brain never shuts the fuck up. Um, So there was that, but also you just reminded me that another reason is that now I've trained myself um, in that I overcame the majority of my issues on my own. I never saw anyone. I was never clinically diagnosed. And the way I did it was exposure therapy. My biggest fear was the sense of guilt that I would feel if I didn't follow my plan. I it wasn't the act of eating a piece of cake. It wasn't the act of missing a workout. I was terrified of the feeling that either of those things would bring. I if you even at the time, if you'd said to me, Are you scared of cake? I would have said no. But if you'd asked me, okay, would you like to eat this piece of cake? I would I would freeze. I, I literally would freeze up. I was paralyzed. I couldn't touch the cake. I couldn't look at it. I would have cried if you tried to feed force feed it to me. I would have probably fought back against you to stop me from doing it. And the reason was because I was simply terrified of this feeling of guilt. But once I decided that enough was enough and I really wanted to recover, I went through a phase with food, especially with exercise, it was a bit different, where I purposefully put myself in a position where I was going to eat a food I was afraid of and I discovered that nothing happened but also 
over time, the overwhelming sense of guilt went away. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's making me think of, um, I'm trying to think, I can't remember the name. I think they're called like pragmatist. Like there's an area of philosophy that looks at um, mm-hmm. the the potential of the, the way that we experience the potential of things. And it's something I thought about semi-recently because of what you were speaking about before of the, it's not actually missing the workout or going off the diet that, that messes with you. It's the potential for what will happen if that yeah. does. And yeah, there's a whole school of philosophy that talks about that, how we experience everything as its potential rather than it's actual, like what it, what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think it aligns so well with that. And it, um, in the research, especially with um, exercise addiction and well, compulsive exercise specifically with this, but they talk about the, the fear of guilt. And so it's not even just the guilt, it's the fear of the guilt that's going to come yeah. if you don't do it. And that you, yeah, what you were explaining there sounds so much like that. And, and again, very similar to my, experience i was terrified of what would happen if if like i think if you asked me at the time like what do you think is going to happen if you mm-hmm. don't do it i think if i started explaining it i would realize that it didn't make sense because i'd be like yeah. i'd be like oh i'm gonna like, my body's gonna i'm gonna gain lo- loads of fat and i'm gonna lose all my muscle and all my friends aren't gonna like me and then I, as i'd say it, i'd be like well i've missed workouts before and i didn't lose all my muscle and i didn't gain any body fat and i still got my friends and like I, i'd realize but there's just that yeah, it's just the fear of it. It's not even that it's real or it's going to happen. Uh, See, the eating disorder voice in me became very crafty with that because if I had said to anyone, oh, I, I, I think that if I eat this piece of cake tomorrow, I'll wake up and I'll be overweight, I would have laughed at myself to begin with. I would have said, oh, that makes no sense. But the way the eating disorder voice actually answer the question what's going to happen if you don't do this today or if you do eat the cake today was well you do it once and then you're going to do it again and then you're going to do it again and you're going to become less and less disciplined over time so yes maybe what you're what you're doing now doesn't really do anything um, to your body right this second but you're giving yourself leeway once well now you're gonna always give yourself leeway and uh, that's gonna spiral so I scared myself into staying disciplined essentially mm. yeah and that that's the slippery slope with discipline isn't it is like you can infinitely keep increasing your like there's no there's no kind of threshold for discipline you can go forever you know how, like how how much are you going to discipline yourself and for how long and how restrictive are you going to get um it becomes yeah a very slippery slope and it's and it's a foundation of the fitness industry and at least in the way that people talk about it it's such a common word that people use and use in a very kind of lazy way often um rather than kind of giving it the nuance that it actually needs which is that it's good to be disciplined sometimes and to say you know what actually i'm going to try and not do that or i'm going to try and make sure i go to the gym today because it's going to make me feel better and even though you know that part of my brain tells me i i don't want to do it necessarily i'm going to try and if i go there and i hate it i'll leave and that's fine um and that that, that discipline's fine but telling yourself like you know i have to keep doing this Otherwise, you know, something terrible is going to happen or no matter how horrible I feel, I have to keep going. Mm-hmm. That's not good. But we don't add, you don't see that nuance in the fitness industry as much as I think we should. 
um and again you know I, i'm not i'm not trying to shit on the fitness industry indefinitely i get it you know i think a lot of the time we just regurgitate what we see other people do so people just you know make posts the same that they saw somebody else do and they got they got a hundred thousand likes so i might as well say it as well and maybe i'll get yeah from it um and and yeah obviously it's people's jobs so you know that's that becomes difficult but i hope stuff like this like podcasts like this and people mm -hmm. talking about the nuances can at least then bring that like literacy for people where they can they can see that post about discipline and go oh actually i do remember that podcast though that i listened mm -hmm. to and they said that maybe we should think about that so you know then then we can we can filter it ourselves yeah, that's exactly why I was hoping to bring you on. On the topic of discipline, something that I was thinking about lately is that when you tell yourself, when you give that narrow view of what discipline is, which is, you know, you push through everything for the sake of this workout or this diet or whatever it may be, um, and you you are entrenched in this um, dysmorphic or disordered mentality, I also think that it's no longer discipline. You you would actually be more disciplined by engaging in behaviors that are going to enable you to recover because positive discipline is helping you push yourself out of your comfort zone. So if if you are disciplined in that you are sticking with this vicious cycle that you're stuck in because that's your comfort zone, Discipline isn't pushing you to out of your comfort zone. It's it's just you're you're just telling yourself, well, I do this because I'm disciplined. Um, but it's because you're comfortable in this cycle. For me, it was very comfortable to adopt these disordered behaviors. Recovery was really uncomfortable. And for me, the the positive approach to discipline was to tell myself, you're scared of eating this cake, but you're gonna eat it anyway. Yeah, I was trying to scribble down notes while you were speaking because there's so many things I wanted to speak to you about. I know I'm going to miss some of them, but there was, yeah, I think I really like that. That I've not really thought about it in that sense before, but it makes me think of other things. I suppose, yeah, it comes down to with with discipline is that it's subjective, as you're you're saying there. You know, it what you're being disciplined about can can be negative. You can be disciplined to do negative things, and sometimes. Um, and also that it be, I think discipline has almost become a, a mask or like a, a way of um, kind of blurring what could be classed as disordered and what could be problematic. The same way that you were talking about with muscle dysmorphia and something that we see in the research, if someone has a muscular physique, if someone lifts weights, if someone's gaining muscle, that is a for, for so many people, including a lot of clinicians, that is the a big old green tick that says they're great and healthy and we don't need to worry about them at all. And the word discipline feels like that kind of, has that connotation as well. If you say, you, if you, if, no matter what you're doing, if you're saying I'm being disciplined, there's kind of a big old green tick that says, oh, I don't worry about them. Like they're, they're just sticking to their disciplined routine. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes me also think about this, because um, you used the word, I think negative discipline there or something like that. Um, it made me think of perfectionism 
and in the compulsive exercise research again because perfectionism mm -hmm. is really closely linked with disordered mm -hmm. eating and, and and these kind of things but they they call it dysfunctional perfectionism which is mm -hmm. where you 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 kind of um beat up on yourself because you're not adhering to your perfect ideal whatever that is mm -hmm. you know it's okay to have a to want to be you to strive for greatness so to speak you know it's okay to want to do great things or want to you know, achieve something that you see as perfect but it's how you react when you don't meet it because we're not perfect and you're never going to be uh, you know all listeners i hate to break it to you but you know that we're <laughs> no one's ever going to be perfect i'm afraid um, and it's that it's how you react to that those failures and those moments where you can't meet it um, and it makes me th they kind of reminded me of that to some degree and that there's like kind of there's um forgotten the word we were using now but there's de dedication it wasn't dedication but i'm gonna go with dedication um discipline discipline was a word there's discipline and then there's like dysfunctional discipline which is mm -hmm. where yeah you're doing it in a you're disciplined about something that is kind of harming you in a sense and then you require positive discipline to take you back from that and say i'm not gonna keep doing those disordered behaviors um yeah, it's a really interesting thought. I, I definitely rambled there, but it's because I've not thought about it before. So I, I was kind of speaking as I was thinking. No, not at all. That was I, I found it really intriguing and it made me think, uh, just developing my thought further, uh, that we often can miss eating disorders or um, dys body dysmorphic disorders because we cover them up with these uh, words that look really good. Like one is discipline, but also another one that came to mind is strength. Like for example, with muscle dysmorphia, you think that by sticking to this diet and this training program, you're strong. When in truth, just like with discipline, you're not really disciplined because you're just staying in your comfort zone. And that's not discipline. That's easy to do um, in comparison to pushing yourself out of it. Similarly, you're not strong, you are weak, because the moments that you things don't go your way, you you fall apart. And I'm talking to myself, because I people might could have said, oh, you're so strong, you're able to maintain this mental fortitude, you know, to follow this plan to a T. I was freaking weak. The moment I couldn't do exactly what I plan on doing, the world was ending. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really hard thing to kind of define, isn't it? Because it, I, 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 I agree with you that that I, I felt weak in that, mm -hmm. um, even though I was doing these behaviours that people was linked synonymously with strength, um, and it, it's a, it's a real, it's a real problem. And, and you made me think about it there with the whole like you know, the way we cover up. Um, these disorders with these kind of words and with these ways of the strength and all these kind of things and there's actually a study um so my my whole phd is basically looking at the 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 reason for it is that in services that provide help for appearance concerns so including disordered eating and that um we don't see many men um, and we especially don't see many men who are oriented towards muscle um, mm -hmm. we, we see very few of those those people, despite the fact that we know that they exist in the community from the bits of studies that we've done. We don't see them there. So I'm trying to figure out why that is. Um, and one of the reasons why I think that that probably is, and I'm yet to quite look into this bit, but is because when we view 
these people, especially with muscle dysmorphia, and they they look muscular and they behave, they're lifting weights and they're doing those things, we are less likely to offer them help or assume that they might need help. Um, mm-hmm. Because as you're saying, you know, we we kind of those words that we use to describe them are synonymous with healthy and synonymous with positive. And um, despite the fact that they f- may feel weak and may feel kind of defenseless and powerless, we view them as powerful. And there's a study um, that basically looked, they they showed two case studies. I think it was actually four, but I'll say two for now. Two case mm-hmm. studies with uh, muscle dysmorphia and anorexia, like written case studies, and showed them to undergrad students and asked them, um, both the case studies said that the person like gave the same negative consequences. So the person felt equally as sad and struggled equal equal amounts. Um, but then they asked the student, um, how likely would you be to help that person? Um, how likely do you think it is that that person would be able to like kind of get through it and recover? And they all basically the, the overwhelming statistic was that um, when they viewed people with muscle dysmorphia, they they said that they they assumed they would get better. Um, and because of that, they wouldn't offer them any help or ask them how they were or that kind of thing. Whereas with anorexia, they assumed they wouldn't get better. So they would be much more likely to offer them help and, and ask if they're OK. So and, that, and that's part of the you know, it's something that um, I think that I try and talk about a lot. And I, I think I, I maybe talk about too much to some degree. But the, the, one of the big, big issues with the with disordered eating body issues around muscle. Mm-hmm. is the lack of empathy we have for them because because they're so tied to you know they're the ideal as far as society talks about you know they've hit it you know they they've got the abs they've got the big arms the shoulders so like why should we give a shit about them like you know they're doing great as far as, far as like appearance concerns go so people really struggle to be empathetic towards them and to want to help them i think um and and that that you know so it's not even just that these people who are struggling with muscle issues aren't seeking help or aren't realizing or aren't whatever it's that the rest of us aren't asking or aren't putting things in place to try and help them because and it's the same thing i think with steroids to some degree you know i um we we have so much evidence um that steroids are very dangerous for people and and we have so little evidence about the weight like how much people should take and how much people um like you know in, in a safe in quote, quote unquote manner but the the services available to help people who are who are using them and, and stuff just don't exist. And I think partly it's because we just assume that they're vain, like oh they just want to look good, like they're just it's just vanity. They just got big egos. So why would we bother helping them? Um, and I think that's a real barrier to try and help in this population. Um, and yeah, I I you know, I had uh, multiple GP appointments where. I'd mentioned but like feeling crap about my eating or whatever and doctors would kind of brush it aside and I, I had one doctor it's a story I tell all the time but one doctor who flexed his arm at me and said like oh you're probably fine though like don't worry about that and kind of like you know hinted like oh you know your arms are pretty big so I wouldn't worry about your eating or you know what I mean like it's just that like writing off any of my concerns because well mm-hmm. you look strong so you must be the big old green tick you're fine <laughs> uh, and yeah so I think that's a real problem That's a wrap for part one. If you want to connect with George, you're going to find the links to do so in the show notes, as well as the links to the two charities that he is mentioning throughout this podcast. If you want to connect with me or you want to work with me, you can apply for coaching by using the same links in the show notes. And I will see you, figuratively speaking, next week for part two. Thanks as always for your time.
and until next week. Lastly, if you want to support the podcast and help me reach more people, please leave a five-star rating or review on any podcast platform that you're using. Thank you very much for listening and I'll speak to you soon.